Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, a little bit of everything. So, Richard, every once in a while, we will do a show that's just kind of a quick hit on a number of topics that we wouldn't do otherwise, and that's what I want to do today. I'm going to start you with this one. The negotiations are ongoing on Capitol Hill right now about another COVID stimulus bill. And one of the elements that we know Joe Biden and congressional Democrats are very attached to is increasing the federal minimum wage to $15. Bernie Sanders, who is now going to be the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, has said that this is a necessary measure to keep people from, quote, working on starvation wages, close quote. So, Richard, uh, he and the president are trying to help people put more money in their pockets. What's wrong with that? Well, the first thing, of course, is that people who earn the minimum wage or below it are not necessarily sole support of their own lives. They may be part of families. They may be summer jobs. They may be entry-level jobs. Most people who started a minimum wage quickly move up and get much above it. Uh, that is their first raise. The problem if you put a $15 minimum wage is you get a very high wage, but you don't get any jobs. Uh, the estimates have been made that the number of jobs that would be lost under the $15 an hour minimum wage would be several million. Uh, which seems plausible. They would not be evenly distributed throughout the country. In a place like New York City, where wages are now effectively above that level, the minimum wage change would have no effect. But if you go to down-and-out rural counties where the kinds of wages are $7 or $8 an hour, it would be absolutely devastating on the economy. And so what happens is the kind of perpetual ignorance that Biden and Sanders have shown under the minimum wage law doesn't get any more attractive when you start to attach it to a kind of a COVID stimulus bill. Indeed, that's exactly the danger that you get from a bill like this, is they take a necessity that they perceive and then put in a bunch of stuff which makes no sense in good times and it makes no better sense when you're starting to deal with bad times. I've often accused Mr. Biden of having complete economic illiteracy, and I think, in effect, that's exactly what's happening here. The sad thing, of course, is that there's a lot of popular support for this, so they're politically on strong ground. Uh, but the only way in which you actually get wages to get the $15 and to keep them there is to have productivity levels high enough so that people are willing to hire at that age. And so what you have to do is go back to the playbook of the Trump administration. And what they said and what they did on that is they tried to reduce the taxes and the overhead for getting people in, because if they're a fixed quantity, uh, say $3 per hour, it's going to hurt a low-income income worker much more than it's going to hurt a high income worker. And what's happening is in so many other areas, sensible Trump policies are now being abandoned by uh, progressives who I think on these kinds of issues have very, very much to answer for. I regard this as a high version of economic illiteracy. It should be categorically opposed by the Republicans. My own view about this is very simple. On all economic middles, issues like this. If Bernie Sanders is in favor of it, it's a bad idea. Another thing I want to get you to, the Biden Justice Department announced yesterday, somewhat unsurprisingly, given the trends that you've just identified, that they are dropping the suit initiated by the Trump Justice Department against Yale. This was over the issue of admissions in which it was alleged that Asian and white students were being discriminated against there. And Richard, we saw this bubble up during the Trump years, especially the greater concern amongst Asians that affirmative action programs or policies that approximated them tended to have a disproportionate effect 
on Asians. You also saw that in New York, where there have been fights to change the racial mix in these selective high schools. So the Yale case is gone, but there's still this private case against Harvard on basically the same grounds. Are we coming closer to the day when affirmative action starts running into serious roadblocks in the judiciary? Well, I mean, you have to look at this one to the Supreme Court almost exclusively because that's where it's going to end up. And it turns out that on that particular issue, I think a 6-3 vote against various forms of affirmative action programs are going to be pretty powerful. Um, one of the most famous sentences that the Chief Justice uttered in his life is he said, the way to end affirmative action is to end affirmative action. And he wasn't trying to be glib about it. What he said is that the arguments that sort of interim short-term affirmative action relief programs are good because it will get people to the point where they'll be no longer needed. Um, that argument has been made essentially since 1965 or 1966 when this first came up. And it turns out that it's always wrong. Um, what you have to do is open things up. Uh, my own view is that if you have an anti-discrimination law, you have to enforce it. Uh, so at that particular point, I think what's so troublesome about Yale and Harvard is most of the arguments that they made saying that they really didn't discriminate, they just relied on subjective factors, are just flat out false. Uh, there is a very strong rule in the admissions business, which is the people who are strong on boards and grades are the same people who do extracurricular activities, public participation and the like. And the thought that you can have a 200 or 250 point differential on the SAT test and say that the inferior scores of a black candidate actually make them stronger than a white or an Asian candidate, uh, that is preposterous. My other view, of course, is in conflict with this, I do think private institutions, at least if they act separately, uh, should be allowed to dictate the terms under which they want to take people. The difficulty you see with that is very similar to the one you start seeing with platform economy. There is such a uniformity that's coming out of these institutions in favor of diversity that one almost wonders whether or not there's some kind of cooperation or collusion amongst them are hard to prove and perhaps false, uh, which essentially therefore means that you're not dealing with a competitive market in which different institutions start to take different positions. And why is that true? Because amongst the other reasons that you have to have an affirmative action program is you're worried about the, the Biden administration, Justice Department coming in, and if it turns out that there are insufficient numbers of minority candidates in these particular schools, they could say that that's a form of discrimination. And so what you may do is try to preempt them by moving in that direction. So this is a complete nightmare one way or another. Um, I think it's rather unfortunate that the uh, Biden administration decided to do this precipitously. Um, what happened is he is so utterly unilateral in virtually everything that he has done uh, that it's going to create a lot of serious issues. One of them, if you take into account both this and what has happened with respect to de Blasio in his effort to overturn the admission standards for the elite high schools in New York, is you may actually see as is already happening with Hispanics and even with some black candidates, uh, you may see Asians who have been reliable Democratic voters for many years start to switch over to the other side. I mean, the offset was, oh, we can't call it the Wuhan virus anymore because that's racism. I, I think it's a silly point. It's a place of where the thing origin is. not a question of saying that only Chinese people are terrible. Uh, but if Biden wants to do that, it's not going to be an offset to the kind of really tangible harm that he's going to commit on the other side. So as I 
I said, if Harvard's acting alone and there were no anti-discrimination law, I would have some sympathy for their position, but I don't have any for it when they have an anti-discrimination law. And I think they just fabricate statistics and anecdotal evidence uh, to deny what is a perfectly obvious fact. There are no subjective factors that you could put into play uh, that will credibly account for the huge differences in standardized grades and scores adjusted for the academic kinds of work that you are doing in the institution that you're part of. You just can't do it. Uh, And they know that. We know that. Everybody knows that. Uh, But these days, the one thing you're not allowed to say is that truth, which is perfectly self-evident, that there's a huge thumb on the scale at Harvard, at Yale, and every other Ivy League institution, indeed, every other major academic institution in the United States. Richard, big tech has been in the crosshairs from conservatives and liberals alike lately. Let me ask you about a new front in this war. Earlier this week, we had the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, announce a proposal there that would subject social media platforms to fines of $100,000 a day if they suspended a candidate from their service in the course of an election. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that and also more broadly about where we draw lines here. DeSantis referred to what's happening on social media as viewpoint discrimination, which is a a term we most associate, obviously, with constitutional law. Is the First Amendment the right lens through which to look at these issues with social media platforms banning people? Well, there are two issues here. There's one about uh, sort of state control over national media, and then there's the question of the First Amendment component to it. Uh, The great difficulty with respect to the DeSantis program is not that you can't understand what it's about. He's not trying to make sure that they're biased or unbiased in everything they say. He say, you take off a political candidate and you deplatform them, you're going to have to pay. But now, in effect, what we do is we go to the great state oven, you say Massachusetts, and it says we are going to find a tech company $100,000 a day if they allow misinformation to proliferate on its website, including misinformation generated by candidates. So what you could do is find a situation in which you have equal inconsistent commands imposed by different states. And that's going to raise uh, what we call a dormant commerce clause challenge. These things are indisputably things that go across. And if you allow DeSantis to do this in Florida, it's not going to only influence Florida content. It's going to influence the content everywhere else. And on the other side, exactly the same thing is going to happen if Massachusetts puts its converse situation in there. So I think the jurisdictional level problem is is very acute. And my guess is that it would be struck down on those kinds of grounds because of the real tangible risk of inconsistent obligations on these characters. Then on the First Amendment issue, there's a different kind of difficulty they have to write. Uh, it's a kind of question of do we believe in freedom of speech, um, but whose speech do we think ought to be free? Uh, so the platforms are going to announce that we are in control of our business and our destiny. Uh, we want to put certain kinds of content up and keep other certain kinds of content out. Uh, we're private parties. We have the right to exclude and to promote this. And then on the other side, there are people who say, you know what? These guys claim to be private, but they're protected protected by the exemptions under Section 230 of the uh, Communications Act and so forth, uh, so that they don't suffer from liability like ordinary private parties. They really have become editors, even though they're not treated as such. And so we want to treat them as though they're state actors. And since they should be treated as if they're state actors, they're now kind of a a close quasi-Congress or quote quasi-state, and they're subject to viewpoint discrimination under the states. Well, then you do that, and they're going to come back and say viewpoint discrimination is perfect. 
perfectly permissible if the reason that you shut somebody down is they've engaged in utterly horrible conduct, like, for example, false statements and defamations about other kinds of people. And the category of such statements is not empty. The problem is what we put into this category becomes, I think, absolutely indefensible. So it's one thing to say, in effect, that um, I believe that X drug is effective, and then to report online fabricated results from a test that you knew to be false. I mean, that kind of stuff is so devastating. But that's not what it's about now. Now it's about somebody who puts forward something that disagrees with the position of the WHO, the World Health Organization, or the CDC, the Center for Disease Controls, and so forth. And that's it. Well, that's essentially opinion. I mean, I disagree with what AWHO says, what CDC says. I certainly disagree with virtually everything that Anthony Fauci said. And I don't want to be put into a position where this is now regarded as misinformation. I think if I'm wrong, he should come forward with an explanation as to explain how we can beat it. Uh, that used to be the remedy for sort of general predictions and larger opinions uh, on these things. And what's happened is the misinformation category has become so broad uh, that it becomes utterly indefensible uh, to deal with this. And it turns out there's a skew here. Uh, the conservative statements like, you know, Parler, they can't even get themselves on the internet anymore. And if you look at Facebook and you look at Twitter and you look at uh, uh, Google, Google, uh, they're all basically deep blue organizations. And, and so they sort of announce their neutrality and they don't do anything in order to do it. Now, Facebook had an interesting idea, which is they decided to have an independent uh, platform review some of these things. And I think there was a recent instance where they said taking somebody off was unjustified and the company decided to put it back on. Uh, is that private adjudication going to be sufficient? Lots of doubts about it. Are they putting together a yes-man panel? Or they're putting together a panel with independent men and women. We don't really know what the answer is, but I think, in effect, that Zuckerberg is is right to this extent. Either he figures out how to clean his own house, or somebody else is going to clean it. The conservatives will go after these guys on the grounds that they are essentially hopelessly biased in their own political views, and they can make a very powerful case that that's the situation. And the liberals will go after them because of the way they think that they mistreat confidential information for gain. And so these guys are going to be in into a crossfire and shot by both. Um, I think it's dangerous. I think uh, the Facebook companies and other companies like that, the platform, had a little bit more self-discretion. A lot of this criticism would disappear. But I think at this particular point, there's a hard chance that these people will take such extreme position that we will see multiple inconsistent forms of regulation. It's worth noting, I think it's probably going to be a terrible bill from what I've seen about it, but only Klobuchar wants to change the way in which we start to look at the antitrust stuff as it applies to the media. And if we start having a presumption against mergers in an industry which has hundreds of these things you know, taking place yearly, it will be an incredible crimp on an economy where in many cases the way in which small firms survive and prosper is to sell themselves out to larger firms who could then finance their work into a larger market. So I think there is privacy issues, common carrier issues, antitrust issues, and given the Biden information or administration unerring instincts thus far to come up with the wrong solution, I'm pretty pessimistic about how this will work out. Final thing I'll ask you about, COVID and schools. So in San Francisco... The schools have been closed since last March. We got news yesterday that the city is suing its own board of education to produce a plan to get them reopened in short order. In Chicago, where you live part of the time, the mayor had ordered teachers to come back to the classroom this week. 
The union refused. The two sides are negotiating now. Walk us through the legal dimensions of this. If I'm a mayor and desperately want to get my schools open, but I'm up against a recalcitrant teachers union that doesn't want to cooperate, do I have good legal options? Well, that's a very interesting question because a lot of it's going to depend upon what the collective bargaining agreement said, if it has any kind of provision which relates to the issue of emergency cessation of education on the grounds that it hurts the health and safety of the teachers. Nobody could argue that those kinds of concerns would be illegitimate. Nobody would say that teachers have to go back into school, which have been laced with cyanide until the thing has been cleaned up. Uh, But what happens is the basic union structure, which I regard as utterly indefensible, becomes much more costly when you start having these rather global claims. Is COVID bad enough or not bad enough? There are many teachers who do indeed believe that they will die if they go into the classroom. The answer comes back, and I think it's probably right at this particular point of time, uh, that the students generally do not get it at the level that adults do, and they generally do not transmit it to adults, to which you can find exceptions based on individual cases and the like. And so at this point, it becomes a probability. The test that I would use in these circumstances is do you think the danger of infection or risk to teachers is greater than it is in flu season, Uh, which was very light this year because so much of the separation that took place for other reasons. I don't think it reaches that level. Then what you have to do is to try to get an order. And, you know, this has been going on for a long time. In New York, they have something known as the Taylor Act, which essentially uh, recognizes public bargaining uh, for teachers and then requires you to go to compulsory arbitration and prohibit strikes. But strikes take place because there's no effective aftermeasure. And the same kinds of situation is still in effect when you start looking not at Cal- uh, at New York, you start looking at Illinois. And so what do you do? Um, they say, no, you can try to sue them. You're going to dismiss and fire them all. Who's going to come and teach the classes if uh, many of the parents will be supportive of the union and so forth? It is such a complete nightmare that essentially it doesn't work. So now what's the answer? In wartime, excuse me, in COVID time, although they seem to be the same thing these days, um, there's nothing I think you could do in the short run to dislodge the teachers except pay them more money, which is what they're after. Uh, But in my world, there would be no such thing as a public union. Um, I have long taken the position, for example, in connection with the Obama Presidential Center, that you want to put something in a public park, which is going to give millions of dollars to a former president and basically uh, depreciate a major public asset. You can't do it. I feel the same thing about unions. These guys want monopoly wages when they should get competitive wages. They want to disrupt the teaching of students so they could do it for their personal advantage. I think it is unconstitutional, given this public trust notion, that any any city or any state or any federal government to voluntarily cede monopoly power to its teachers. In normal circumstances, this is a a real impediment, but in crisis circumstances, it turns out to be a much larger one because the union has been propped up by the system to be so strong that there are no second-tier sanctions against it. So what I would like to see is a basically a strong lawsuit, uh, preferably brought by the Biden administration, if you want to fantasize about these things, in which they say, look, we do, cannot work in a system of teachers' unions. Now, what's happening, there was a nice column by Dan Henninger this morning in the Wall Street Journal. He says these public schools are now so bad uh, that they're losing students. Uh, Catholic schools are on the gain. Uh, home 
home teaching cooperatives are there, private schools are going to build up. And so the theory is that what you'd like to do is to have an exit right so strong uh, that the union's political base will no longer be able to support it. Uh, Their ability to get federal contributions will be declining by virtue of the fact that the number of students they enroll is going down. Uh, Henninger said this could not happen soon enough. I fully agree with him on that. I'm going to repeat something which I've said before, not in order to become popular, but I think generally public unions are flatly pernicious in terms of their impact and that no government that is decent and cares about its citizens ought to allow them for schools, for prisons, for police, for firemen or anywhere else. I think these governments are not allowed to collude amongst themselves in order to reduce wages. That's an antitrust violation. I would not exempt local governments from that. But I do think, in effect, uh, that giving this lock does not work. Uh, You are dealing with a situation where public unions have much more monopoly power than do private unions. You unionize a private firm, uh, what happens is its competitors come into the market and they slowly erode it. But there's no way you're going to see the same kind of entry coming into a public school system, much more powerful controls, and they are extremely astute in knocking out charter schools, private schools, and so forth. Right now, the Biden administration will probably cave, I hope not, uh, to the teachers in an effort to stop these various programs in Washington, D.C., and so forth. What we have to do is to recognize that you can't cure the symptom unless you cure the root cause, and that root cause is public professional unionization. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.